You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and today we're turning our COVID-19 lemons into online lemonade with a crash course in digital communication with today's guest, Dr. Joanna House. A PhD graduate herself, Joanna studied biochemistry before making science communication her full-time focus. As well as running live shows with the likes of Questcon and the science space, Jo has been a prolific producer of online science content, from blogs and social media to live-streamed lab tours, online science shows, and her own YouTube channel. In recognition of this work, Jo was the recipient of the 2017 Flame Award from the Alan Alda Foundation, recognising excellent science communication. As with many of us, the pandemic lockdown has created a fair share of challenges for Jo and her current role at the Science Space Outreach Centre, but drawing on her digital experience has helped them pull together online alternatives to their usually hands-on science experience. Jo joins us today to provide a perspective on managing online communication and this increasingly digital world. Dr. Joanna Howes, welcome to Lab Notes. Thank you very much. I keep forgetting I have a full name. <laughs> well, I wanted to start with setting a bit of context for the audience. Could you tell us a bit about your current role? Yeah, so I work at a place called Science Space. We're a science museum, so kind of like Questacon. We've been running for about the same amount of time as well, but we're a lot more regional based as well. So we have a whole bunch of exhibits that kids can come and play with, um, but we have you know stuff to do for people of all ages. So it's a great place to work. It's kind of like I hit the jackpot, I think. <laughs> so we should point out that your science credentials run a bit deeper than just children's outreach You've also got a PhD. Could you tell us a bit about your thesis into coral chemistry? Yeah, absolutely. So for many, many years, I wanted to be a research scientist. Um, and from about the age of 12, I yeah basically worked towards having a PhD in chemistry. Um, and I got there eventually and then realized that it wasn't for me, which was super fun. Um yeah, so I realised I enjoyed talking a little bit more about other people's research than I enjoyed doing my own. So I decided to investigate science communication and I haven't looked back. So that transition from core science to science communication involved a master's with Questacon and ANU? Yeah, so um, at ANU, the Australian National University, they have this amazing program called the Shell Questacon Science Circus which is basically, um, it basically just means I have the excuse of saying I ran away to join the circus and people look at you weirdly and it's wonderful. Um, <laughs> but it's a it's a joint kind of program between Questacon and the Australian National University. So you work for Questacon, you go to get to travel around Australia, um, unpacking a giant truck and setting up a portable Questacon in different places around Australia. I got to do a bunch of tours in remote Australia as well, busted a tyre in the middle of the outback. It was a great time. Um, but yeah, so I ended up coming out of that with a master's in outreach and science communication. So up till a few months ago, you're doing quite a lot of face-to-face -face communication and science outreach. And like a lot of us, the COVID epidemic pulled the rug out from under you and you've had to transition quite a lot online. Can you tell us about that, that change of pace and, and what you've been doing to adjust to this new way of operating? Yeah, I think like a lot of places, we kind of got a bit blindsided by it. Like, I don't know about you guys, but we definitely knew it was coming 
but it's not one of those things you realize is coming until it actually happens and you get the call to shut down and and you know work from home and work remotely and you're kind of like oh <laughs> most of our outreach and business plan was based on you know schools being able to come and visit and people being able to come to our workshops and our holiday programs that we just we can't run anymore so in the last i think day or two before we shut down we kind of very hurriedly turned our stem zone into a, a video studio and um we filmed a bunch of our demonstrations and diy science things and then we've been using those to put up on our facebook page um we've been doing live streams which have been so much fun um and i've gotten to know a lot of people in our community a lot of kids in our community as well um, and then just recently, we have started doing virtual excursions as well. So that's where, um, yeah, we do live shows and we have live planetarium shows and all sorts of fun things. Yeah. But it all happened very, very fast. Now, whilst COVID has definitely accelerated the transition online, you were personally working in digital communication well before the lockdown kicked in, including hosting a YouTube channel, a blog, your personal website, and of course, posting across social media. One of the reasons we really wanted to get you on the show is to tap into that expertise and provide something of a starter guide for the rest of us now dabbling in digital science communication. What can you tell us about your online presence? Yeah, definitely. I think part of the reason I wanted to go and do science communication um, and do the program at ANU was to kind of explore all the different opportunities and different avenues. Um, the really good thing about the circus program is you get to dip your fingers into a lot of different methods of communication. So that's like uh, live presentations and performing, which is a lot of fun. But another part of that, a big part of that is kind of online media. So I got to do a few different things where I got to experiment with doing live streams. So I, I followed a bunch of scientists around their lab with a, a camera and um, asked them questions posed to me by a live audience, which was really cool. Um, and they got to talk about what they, they did and what they're doing in, this, in their laboratories. And I also got to start my own um, YouTube channel as well. Um, so I got to have a bit of a play around with science history and telling stories um, and trying different kind of methods of communication through that. I also got to do a bunch of freelance writing as well. So I think I did the calculations for this for a, um, a bio I had to fill out. Um, and the videos that I wrote scripts for now have like over 8 million views <laughs> on YouTube, which is terrifying and cool all at the same time. So... <laughs> Yes, I've got a lot of experience kind of writing in that space and presenting in that space as well. So, yeah. So could I ask you what your, your approach, your systems are now to creating engaging content and finding and pulling out the stories of science that will kind of resonate? Mm, yeah, because that is really quite tricky, isn't it? It's I think it's a lot harder than a lot of people realise as well. Like I think when I first started, I was very much like, oh, I'm just going to talk about stuff that I find interesting and then people will pick up on the interest and it'll be great and everything will be fine and I'll give people all these facts and figures and minds will be changed and they'll sing my praises for years to come. Um, but it doesn't work like that at all. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's this really interesting kind of research that I've been I've been reading about since I did the Masters is this idea that facts don't work. And um, facts are not engaging and facts are not something that will change people's minds. It's this thing, if you want to get into really academic language, which, <laughs> you know, as a science communicator, I tend to shy away from, um, but I'm going to do it. It's going to happen. Um, 
we call the deficit model. So it's this idea that the main problem is that this person doesn't know or your audience doesn't know enough about a particular thing. You know, the logical way that you're going to fix that is you're just going to tell them about it, right? It seems to make sense. It seems to work on paper. It works in your head because a lot of, you know, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I love learning about stuff and facts tend to work with me. But research is basically showing that the deficit model, that kind of filling people's heads with knowledge to change people's minds or to make people more scientifically literate just doesn't work. Um, It's interesting looking at the reasons why. A lot of people have, have figured out that people make decisions based on a lot more than just evidence, which seems mental, right? Like it just doesn't really seem to make much sense at all. But, you know, if you think about it, a lot of people have, you know, emotional connections to facts, like their parents might have believed a certain thing um, and going against that cert- that thing that their parents believed might have a lot of deep emotional baggage associated with that. So trying to figure out ways to approach stories and approach content delivery um, that speaks to that emotional side of your understanding of science and your um, your understanding of the world, that's a huge challenge and I think it's it seems really easy on the surface. It's just like, oh, I'm just going to tell you about this thing. But when you actually get into it, making people listen, that's the real, like it's easy to tell somebody something, but getting them to listen and getting them to change their minds and, and engage with it on an emotional level is is a lot harder. So I think having a knowledge of your audience and where they're coming from is important as well. Well, that's a convenient segue because my next question was about tailoring to the audience. What is your process for understanding the people you're talking to and how do you go about adjusting a message for a colleague versus the general public or perhaps as you try to engage young children? Um, It's it's such a complicated thing. Everybody is different. You know, everybody is bringing a completely different background, a completely different scaffolding, you know, that kind of background knowledge to a particular thing. They're bringing a a completely different view of the world. Um, and emotional understanding of how how the world works and their place in it. And, yeah, that absolutely has an effect on how they hear your message. Um, if you're working on communicating to an audience, you've got to spend some time with that audience, basically. You've got to listen to what they want and you've got to put your instincts to one side, which is so much easier said than done. Um, you've got to put your instincts to one side. You've got to really listen to to what they're saying and where they're coming from and, and what their questions are and make it relevant for them. Um, I would um, highly recommend if you're really interested in kind of changing language and changing how to speak to somebody based on the scaffolding, I would recommend a, um, a series of videos that Wired did. Um, I think they're still going, I'm not sure, but it's called Five Levels. It's on YouTube. And basically they get experts to explain, uh, one of my favorites is quantum computers. When they get this expert to explain quantum computers to a child, so she's about 10 or 11, I think, and then a teenager, you know, a graduate student, um, postgraduate and a professor, like an expert in that particular field. And it's really fascinating listening to how the academics, some are better at it than others, <laughs> um, explain and change their language. Yeah, it's it's all about getting to know your audience. Like I know when I'm performing shows in front of an audience, even 
explaining stuff to kids, I think, um, changes so differently depending on, you know, even just like a month difference in age. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you can you can do a show for a kindergarten group and then you can do the same exact same show with exact same language for a year one group and they don't get into it nearly as much. So being able to to look at your audience and engage with your audience and kind of going, oh, okay, so they switched off to that or they got into that particular explanation and being flexible and changing how you're explaining things. Um, and that definitely comes with practice, hey. So speaking about tailoring to your audience, can I ask you about the different channels that are available? Obviously, you've got social media, LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter, um, also YouTube, your own blog, your own website. Are there particular places you feel scientists should be focusing their attention? again it depends on your audience like I know that for me personally when I'm talking to my peers I, I like using Twitter science Twitter is fantastic um, academic chat oh, a great time on Twitter I would highly recommend um, Twitter can be very polarizing sometimes but if you find that you know those particular spaces and stick within them it can be really rewarding and you can make really good relationships with people so for me for personal kind of networking and stuff Twitter has been amazing um, but for science space, you know, when we were thinking about where to put our live streams, um, it was an absolute no brainer for us to use Facebook because parents could then, you know, sign in and, you know, their kids could watch with them and they could share it with their networks. And there's a lot of like parents groups on Facebook that we could engage with. So if you're looking for millennials, go with Facebook. Um, if you're looking to engage with other people kind of and network, I would go with Twitter or LinkedIn. YouTube is a bit of a different one because YouTube is such a massive platform now um, and there's a, a massive kind of range of people on YouTube as well so it's it's one of those things where you kind of just have to be persistent keep putting your stuff out there on YouTube and if you found a niche people you know your audience will find you. So speaking of building an audience I wanted to ask you about generating a loyal following where it's no longer you just putting information out into the void but where people are starting to show consistent interest coming back to you for updates and feeling like they're part of your journey. What does it take to build a community on the internet? Mm, um, well, you said consistent interest. It's all about consistency, right? Like if you post one thing and you kind of sit back and kind of go, where is my audience? I don't understand why they're not engaging. It's because you haven't been consistent. You haven't put stuff out there. You know, things like um, the Facebook and YouTube algorithm, they absolutely rely on consistency. So if you post once a week for a couple of years, people will probably find you. But if you post irregularly, then people are probably not, like you're not going to build that audience very quickly at all. So it's all about consistency. It's about practice. It's about finding where your people are. Um, and yeah, just be persistent and keep going and keep shouting into the wind until people start shouting back. So a lot of what we have spoken about so far has been around social media and these third-party platforms where there's an existing network of people waiting to be tapped into. But I note that a lot of people, yourself included, also maintain a personal website that serves as something of a hub for these disparate channels of information. What do you view as the value of hosting and curating your own online space? Yeah, so I mainly use my website as kind of like a, hey, this is who I am. This is the stuff that I've posted and put out there on these different platforms here's a place where you can go and find all of them um, I think anybody with a public portfolio I guess really does need to have that sort of hub where people can just kind of go oh this is this person I'm going to click on this and then immediately like with my website you get taken to a whole bunch of photos and images and I've tried to use a whole bunch of different photos that kind of give a story about 
what sort of stuff I do, what sort of vibe I like to project when I'm performing. So performance Joe and podcast interview Joe are very different people. <laughs> One is is kind of, I've been described as aggressively enthusiastic. So yeah, I once greeted a person at Science Space with such aggressive enthusiasm that she recoiled. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, I'm so sorry. That was too much. Let me tone it down. So knowing kind of who you are and who you want to project to, you know, to your audience is, is important as well. Yeah, it seems like part of it is just being cognizant of what you want people to think of you. A lot of researchers are drawn into science communication before they've had the time to set out what their public persona should look like, let alone taking the next step of determining how best to convey that image publicly. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I would 100% agree with that. And I would also say as well that if you are a researcher out there and you want to try and get into science communication and get into that space, um, have a chat with your supervisor and see if there is some sort of communications group that works with you because something that's happening a lot in places like the UK and America and it's happening a lot more now in Australia as well is these roles are being created for people like me who have media experience and writing experience and communications degrees and we are being put into positions where we do a lot of that communication work so researchers don't have to necessarily because I think researchers are under a lot of pressure to do so many different things, right? And being required to do a whole bunch of extra science communication work, which I think a lot of, you know, grant applications now require, that can be exhausting and that can be scary because I think a lot of academics are under a lot of pressure to do too much, basically. So, yeah, having access to, to people like me who love talking to um, to people about research and love learning new things and, and telling people about the cool new things that they've learned, um, you know, we can help you out and help you figure out, you know, what sort of platforms you want to reach, um, who you want to reach, how you're going to do it, putting you in contact with, with media or, you know, writing up your research and working with you to get a good story happening or, you know, um, being able to you know, being aware of things like Pint of Science or um, other kind of science communication festivals that are happening that you might be able to get involved in and all sorts of things like that. Well, I'm glad you touched on that because I did want to ask about mainstream media and awards programs. They're definitely a way to supercharge your public profile and start connecting with an audience you might otherwise never reach. But the pathways into that sphere are not always obvious to young researchers. What's the process for sticking your hand up and getting involved with mainstream media? Yeah, I think first step is definitely getting in contact with your communications department. I know like every university has one. Um, I know from a, a UAW point of view, um, the communications department there is really um, keen to, to get stories out to the public. So I would get in contact with them and make sure that you're on the um, expert databases as well, because a lot of media outlets go straight to those databases. Um, and if you are an academic at a university, you generally get put on those pretty much straight away. Um, but you can go in and double check that all of your information in your profile matches up with what you're happy to talk about. So um, make sure that you're, uh, search you're searchable, basically, in the areas that you want to be. Um, I would also double check and make sure that um, you are on Twitter um, because a lot of academics are on Twitter um, and a lot of people who can put you into con in contact with others are on Twitter. 
um, a lot of the opportunities that I've had have basically just sprung up because I was in the right place at the right time on Twitter commenting on the right thing. Um, and, you know, people from the ABC got in contact and went, oh, hey, we saw you were doing this thing. Do you want to come on and talk about it? You know, so being in the right place at the right time has a big thing, has a lot to do with it. But that also, you know, means that you have to be in those places in the first place. Um, and also making sure, and this is um, really, really important, making sure that you are being yourself and that you are not talking down to people um, because that's the easiest way to put somebody off, I think. In science communication, we refer to our adult audience normally as the educated non-expert. So think about how you would explain your research to somebody, say maybe your housemate when you were at uni university who was studying law. You know, like they don't have the same scaffolding as you do, but they are very capable of understanding what you're talking about. It's not their fault if they don't understand it. It's your fault, unfortunately, because you haven't really thought about exactly how to communicate it to them in a way that's not patronizing or in a way that um, gets rid of jargon um, and speaks in plain English. I think there's a big difference between speaking in plain English and dumbing something down. So practice how you would talk to, to that particular friend and that will really help you kind of figure out how not to talk down to somebody because <laughs> it's really easy to do, you know, and I do it all the time. I've just practiced enough, I think, that I can sit back and go, oh, no, I'm so sorry. That sucked. <laughs> Let me try that one again. Um, so, yeah, being able to kind of edit yourself is really helpful as well. Yeah, I took part in a competition called the Flame Challenge. That was basically run by Alan Alder of MASH fame. So he, he remembers asking his fifth grade teacher, how does a candle work? And his teacher just kind of went, oh, oxidation. And he remembers kind of sitting there going, cool, <laughs> that really helped. <laughs> I'm going to go over here now and sit with my question and not ask anymore. So he was pretty keen to ditch that kind of thinking and encourage scientists to practice talking to kids in a way that doesn't treat them as though they're not able of understanding. Um, so he started this thing called the Flame Challenge where the kids get to vote on a question and then they encourage scientists to answer that question in a video form or in a um, in written form. And then the kids get to vote on the, their favourite ones. Um, I was just so chuffed and like incredibly honoured that the kids chose my entry. <laughs> this is me kind of battling my Australian tall poppy syndrome. <laughs> well, don't worry, this is a safe space for tall poppies, but let me reframe the question. What, what would your advice be for other young aspiring scientists who might be considering entering award programs themselves? I would say do it. Uh, basically, fight all those instincts that kind of say, you know, you're not good enough and there are people who are better than you who will enter it. Like, yeah, that might be true, but there's no way to tell that unless you give it a go. So just do it. Well, hopefully that's a helpful nudge towards self-actualization for some of our listeners. Before we let you go, though, I don't think we can wrap up a discussion about science on the internet without addressing the minefield of misinformation and controversial topics online. How should scientists handle outlandish claims on the internet and help steer conversations towards a more rational endpoint? Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? So I think you've kind of got to look at the evidence and then you've got to think really hard about where these people might be coming from. Because I think when we're approaching these sorts of questions and saying, no, that's not true, that can actually be really off-putting. 
when you tell somebody that they're wrong and your argument could be absolutely brilliant and really considered, people will still dig their feet in and just be like, you told me I'm wrong, therefore I'm going to absolutely double down on this and and dig my feet in and not believe you. (laughs) So you really got to think about where that person's coming from um, and think about where they might have heard that, why they might be thinking that as well. And be really sensitive to experiences as well, because I think a lot of us are going through a really tough time. Having somebody come in, no matter how expert they are, having somebody come in and sweep in and be like, you're wrong, you know, can actually be really unhelpful, even though it may be true. You know, and it's taken me a long time to to really wrap my head around this and not kind of react with everything you know, inside of me that's been taught that facts are really important. Got to find a way to get through to that person based on, where they're coming from, what sort of experiences they might have had, because you don't know, like they might have had, you know, a loved one who's been caught up in all of this and, you know, has been really sick and, you know, being told that they're wrong is really counterproductive. So I think you've got to be really careful, but also you've got to make sure that you are telling them the truth as well. So I don't have any solid answers, unfortunately, um, because every case is different. And I guess that's what I'm, I'm, you know, the main kind of message of contextual information and the contextual model is looking at the context of where that, that audience is coming from and where that person is coming from and what sort of beliefs may have led up to them listening to somebody who is blatantly wrong. Like maybe they're, they're clinging on to that because they desperately need something like that in their lives yeah, kind of thinking about where they're coming from, why they might be thinking this particular thing and why they might be be listening to this particular bit of misinformation and figuring out ways to counteract that with truthful, factual information in a way that's not going to make them dig their heels in and bite back. And it's not easy at all. And I don't really have any definitive answers, I guess. Well, one thing's for sure, there's plenty of opportunities online for us to practice these skills. <laughs> yes. Definitely. If you ever want an example of what I'm talking about, just try and have an argument in a friend's comment string on Facebook. Like (laughs) you will be in that comment string for the rest of eternity. You know, people will 100% dig their feet in and, and try and tell you that they're right. And absolutely no amount of factual information or links or, you know, evidence (laughs) will make them change their mind. Oh, maybe the audience can AB test some different approaches to settling arguments online. Pretty much. It's like, oh, that one didn't work. Okay, cool. I might try a different tack. <laughs> well, to my final question, one that I ask all of our guests is, do you have any book recommendations for the audience? Oh, I've got a couple of recommendations for you. So I would 100% look at a book called The Science of Communicating Science by Craig Cormick. He used to be, he's a, a previous um, president of the Australian Science Communicators Network. Um, and the book is kind of like a synthesis of a whole bunch of science communication work he did with the CSIRO, and I would highly recommend it. There's a lot of mind-blowing kind of information in there and ways of looking at science communication and communication with the public that have really shaped how I look at all of this kind of stuff. I would highly recommend that. In terms of some really good examples of great science communication, I would 100% recommend a couple of podcasts and not necessarily books, but it's all right. Um, Ologies with Ali Ward is such a great example of making scientists human. Um, I recently listened to the Ologies episode where they talked to a penguinologist, Dr. Tom Hart, and it is delightful. 
mostly because they're talking about penguins, but also because, you know, she talks about where he came from and why he's interested and, you know, why his research is important and, you know, how he he feels going to Antarctica and all of that kind of stuff. The way that she interviews her guests is really, really, really fascinating and you get to know them. It's great. I would highly recommend it. Um, and if you're after a really great time, Wendy Zuckerman's Science Versus podcast is great. Um, I think she's one of the few sort of examples, I would say, of where deficit model is really engaging. The way she communicates the facts is kind of in a story. So it's deficit model, but it's deficit model plus. You know, like she does an anti-vaxxer episode where she's very balanced and kind of looks at, at where people are coming from on the other side as well as, as kind of presenting the facts. So I would highly recommend Ologies and Science Versus as really incredible examples of, of good science communication and very different types of science communication. So, yeah. Well, Dr. Joanna Howes, thanks so much for those recommendations and also sharing your insights and expertise in science communication on the internet. Not at all. I hope it was helpful. Well, that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Brenny Digital. You can find links to both of those organisations, along with our guest's biography, the papers we discuss, and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Pebble Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing.